Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks for listening. My goal is to be turning out two podcasts a month here in 2017, and here we are in the last weekend in January, and I'm getting in number two for the month, so just kind of squeezing in here. Um, Last time, if you listened to our podcast, I was talking about resolutions and maybe a few things to keep in your mind as you were um, making resolutions. And several people re- reached out to me about that and told me about their resolutions and told me about different things they had in mind. It was very cool, some, some of the, uh, the conversations I ended up having with people on the Facebook page and, and via email. Um, but one thing that somebody pointed out that I thought was funny is that when I was talking about Carl Meltzer and his fastest known time on the Appalachian Trail, I said that it makes me think of two things. Um, and then I went uh, on to talk about how it reminds me how there's a lot of cool things out there. And I said that if you're making a resolution, you should be thinking about all the various cool things that are out there. Don't just limit yourself to all the same old stuff. Um, then I never mentioned the second thing. And somebody wrote me and said, you said there were two things that the fastest known time on the Appalachian Trail made you think of. So I wanted to say the number two thing um, is that doing something cool like that doesn't necessarily hurt your main pursuit. Um, he said, for example, his quotation that I read last time on the last podcast, quote, this will just give me more confidence for 100-mile races in the future, unquote. As I said, he is the winningest 100-mile runner of all time. He's won 37 100-mile races. And so he goes off and he does this on the Appalachian Trail, and he doesn't now see himself as a multi-day stage racer or somebody who's going to now do the Trans-Pacific Trail or something else like that. No, he still very much thinks of himself as a specialist in the 100-mile distance, and he believes that this is only going to make him stronger at his primary distance. So the point being, you can spend time doing bike races or swimming challenges or road races or something else like that, and if you're a triathlete, that's not going to make you any less of a triathlete. Um, you're still going to be a triathlete, or you're still going to be a runner if you do a bike race or a triathlon or something like that. Um, you can still be a marathoner if you focus on short trail races. Um, uh, and so lest you think that you're going to be getting away from who you are as an athlete, no, it can actually help your athletic pursuits. Um, Speaking of the ultra world, by the way, uh, you might have seen that I shared on the Facebook page about the World Marathon Challenge. Um, This pursuit, this goal has been done by a few different companies, but this is the third year of this particular group, the World Marathon Challenge, doing this particular challenge. And what it was, if you saw on the website, um, it was uh, seven marathons in seven days on seven different continents. Um, and it's obviously that last one that, that really kind of uh, throws it into to, to disarray. Um, and it was over the course of the past week. Today, as a matter of fact, um, was the last day. Um, and the first one was in Antarctica, and it was negative 20 Celsius uh, during the race. And if you haven't been on their webpage and you haven't been on the, the, the Facebook page for the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast, check it out because I linked to it. Um, but the the pictures and the video from that first day, as you can imagine, people running a marathon on Antarctica uh, in the snow, it's stunning. Um, but they went from there to Chile, they went from there to Miami, they went from there to Spain, they went from Spain to Morocco, then from Morocco to Dubai, and they went from Dubai to Australia. Um, so knocking at all seven. Now, um, after five days, Runner's World uh, wrote about how Michael Wardian, an ultra runner from Arlington, Virginia, uh, was just killing it. Um, and he was. Um, he ran 253 in the negative 20 degrees Celsius um, uh, temperatures in Antarctica. He ran what I consider to be a stunning 
2.37 on day three for the third marathon uh, in Miami um, and ran in the 240s for the last few such that he ended up averaging 245 for all seven days, um, seven marathons, seven days on seven different continents, and he averages 245. Um, a pretty amazing accomplishment there uh, by Michael Wardian. Um, I actually met Michael Wardian because by chance um, he is a neighbor of my sister in Arlington, Virginia. Um, and at a uh, school fundraiser, um, she bid on dinner with Michael Wardian at the silent auction in order to give me a present uh, for helping her train for her first marathon last year. And so I actually have on the docket sometime in 2017, I hope, uh, dinner with Michael Wardian come up. But I met him last year at the New York City Marathon um, because last year, one of the, among the many other things he did uh, was that he ran all of the marathon majors around the world. That's Berlin, Chicago, Boston, uh, New York, and a couple of others, Tokyo, um, and one other. He ran them all around the world. He ran every single one of them in a year. The year after New York, uh, or the week after New York, pardon me, just just this last year, just a couple of, uh, months ago, he ended up uh, going to Las Vegas and he ran the Rock and Roll Las Vegas Marathon, um, and he ran two thirty seven dressed as Elvis um, and set the world record for the fastest marathon ever run by someone dressed as Elvis. Um, but anyway, um, like I said, I got to meet him in New York City because uh, I ran the New York City Marathon a couple of months ago, and that's actually going to be the, the, the focus of tonight's podcast. I, um, I wanted to, to essentially do a race report on the New York City Marathon, um, and I wanted to go ahead and do it now for two reasons. First, uh, because it was a couple of months ago now. It was November 6th, and um, the memory of it is it's not faded. Uh, I had a really good experience there, and so the memories will live with me and stay with me for a very long time. Um, but I, I did want to go ahead and record some thoughts on that. Um, but secondly, because the lottery for the 2017 New York City Marathon is now open. They open it this last week, and it stays open for a month. Um, it was this time last year that I entered the lottery myself, and I was fortunate enough to be chosen to take part in the 2016 New York City Marathon. Um, the short version of this whole race report, if you don't want to listen to it, is that the New York City Marathon lives up to the hype. Um, you've heard about it. It's a storied marathon, um, and it really was that good. Um, I did the Boston Marathon way back in 2000. I'm going to do it again in 2018. It lives up to the hype. I've done Kona a couple of times. It lives up to the hype. Um, and I'm here to say that the New York City Marathon lives up to the hype. Uh, it was worth it. If you've ever thought about doing it, if you want to do it, if it's been on your bucket list, if your your fancy is tickled by it, um, you're going to enjoy it because it really was a great race. Uh, I signed up for the lottery, like I said, about a year ago. Um, at the time, there were sort of two things going on with me. One, um, I was injured. Um, that was right about the time I recorded the first podcast for um, New Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast. Um, and I just had that extracorporeal shockwave therapy that I described in the very first podcast. I was wearing a boot at that point, um, and I really didn't know what the year was going to hold for me. Um, what's more, I was injured. I had bursitis in my heel, and I hadn't talked about this on the podcast before, but one of the reasons why the injury was bothering me so much is because it had been exacerbated uh, by my getting run over by a truck when I was riding my bike last June. Um, Two other guys and I were on our bikes uh, on the, during the day on well-traveled roads, um, following all the rules, wearing bright-colored clothing, uh, and a driver took a left into all three of us um, and literally ran over two of us, um, and then the third uh, hit the side of the car. 
Um, and, and we were all pretty severely injured, as you can imagine from that. Um, so I had a lot of injuries to my legs and specifically a lot of injuries to my right quad. There was a tear in my right quad, um, and that's thrown off my gait. Um, there's also uh, some hyperextension to my left popliteus. Um, and so my gait has just not really been all that fluid since then when I run. Um, and that causes more stress on my lower extremities, which exacerbated this, this injury to my heel. Um, now I'm going to talk on some other podcast later on this year, I'm sure about road safety and getting run over by a truck and what that's meant for me and all that sort of thing. But I don't want to be the focus of tonight's podcast. Um, and so, so I'm just going to kind of move on from that. But with that, the other thing that was kind of going on was not only injury in January of last year, but also I was kind of trying to find my place. Um, I had been a triathlete, um, and I'd enjoyed the world of triathlon, and I enjoyed riding my bicycle, um, but I had essentially decided that I wasn't really going to ride my bicycle anymore. Um, and what did that mean? Did that mean I was still going to do Ironmans and still going to do half Ironmans, but I was only going to train inside? Or, or did that mean I was going to go back to running? Well, if I wanted to go back to running, I was injured from running. So I really just didn't know what was going to happen. Um, I considered going into to cross cycling, um, like cyclocross. Uh, I considered doing off-road stuff. Um, and I, I really just didn't know. And so I signed up for the lottery at the time I was injured, at the time I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I'd always wanted to do it. Um, and I just didn't know what my future was going to hold. And so I kind of figured, well, it's 11 months away. And so I have time to heal and kind of figure things out. Um, and even if I ended up not really being able to race it, whether I did two and a half hours or three and a half hours or four and a half hours, it would be an enjoyable experience because it's something I've always wanted to do. Um, and so uh, I signed up for it. And I didn't realize at the time, but I ended up getting accepted. I ended up getting in through the lottery. And a lot of people don't get in through the lottery. And so I was, I was fortunate that I was actually selected the first time around. Um, I know several other people who also were chosen and, and, and were able to run. Um, but I also know several people who weren't able to run as well. And so I'm hoping that, that they will sign up for the lottery again and give another try. Because like I said, lives up to the hype. Um, my spring in trying to get better uh, from the injury, from trying to recover from the ESWT was just a disaster. Uh, I went back to the doctor over and over and over again. I wasn't really getting better. Initially, eventually, after about four or five months, I kind of just decided, you know what, this is just not getting any better. Um, I think I'm going to be one of those people for whom ESWT was a failure. Um, I got some orthotics from my doctor. I started wearing those. Um, I still wasn't sure what my future would hold. I was still dealing with the emotional trauma of the wreck. Um, and it is a wreck, by the way. It wasn't an accident because that suggests that nobody's at fault. It was a wreck. Somebody was at fault for that. Um, but by the time I got to mid-July, uh, there was about six weeks to go. And at that point, I kind of said, you know what? I got to throw caution in the wind. I have four months to a marathon, and I'm out of shape, and I'm overweight. Um, and so I need to start getting it together here. And so around mid-July, around Bastille Day, around my anniversary, um, I just kind of said, I'm going to start running um, and just see how it goes. Um, I also decided to start going on Weight Watchers um, because at the point, that point, I weighed too much. Um, and I didn't feel like I was, I was able to do enough exercise, enough training to really kind of get my weight under control. And I had been overweight for a while. Um, and so I wasn't grossly overweight, but I was about 15 pounds heavier than, than I needed to be. Um, and I knew, of course, that, that that caused extra stress onto my joints and on my lower extremities and, and certainly didn't make my injury to my heel any better. Um, so for the next six weeks, basically the rest of the summer, I ran as much as I could, but it still wasn't really a whole lot. I tried to run more frequently. I tried to get into 
two runs a week, then three runs a week, then eventually four runs a week. Um, and I lost a lot of weight. I lost about 15 pounds over the course of the next six weeks uh, using Weight Watchers, tracking all the various things with food. Um, by late August, I could train. Um, I wasn't really building fitness at that point, but at least I was training and I had lost some weight. Um, I started kind of getting back into the groove a little bit and uh, I ran my first races since getting run over. It had been more than a year since I had actually towed a starting line. Uh, and in August, I ran three races. Um, at 10 weeks to go, at the end of August, basically the very beginning of September, the race was on November 6th, uh, I, I kind of said, okay, I need to start training now. I think that I've gotten back into the groove. I think I'm healthy enough, certainly not healthy, because I still on every single run could feel my heel. Um, I still now uh, on every single run can feel my heel. I still had to wear compression socks after every single run um, in order to try and keep the swelling down and, and to manage that. Um, I still have to strategically take um, anti-inflammatories. Uh, I still have to stretch and make sure I'm, I'm, I'm paying close attention to foam rolling. But um, with 10 weeks to go, I said, okay, I can manage this and I can start to train. Uh, and over the next six weeks, I had a really solid six weeks. I got over 50 miles per week of running. I got long runs, upwards of two hours or right about two hours. Uh, I started doing a lot more cross training. I started doing a lot more cycling and a little bit of swimming even as well. I won't bore you with all the details of that that, that six-week stretch. Uh, it is all on Strava if you're really interested. And by all means, drop me a line uh, at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com or, or go on uh, the Facebook page or, or Twitter if you want to want more details about it. Uh, but I will say this. It was kind of a bit of everything. <laughs> I had this real abbreviated, quick buildup. And so it wasn't like this nice, drawn-out process where you can start off by working on your aerobic capacity and then slowly begin working on your muscular endurance and then ultimately you begin working on it. Didn't get to, I didn't get to unfold it that way. Um, and so I kind of was having... Uh, this one workout where I'd work on one thing, another workout where I'd work on and something else. And, and, and I was kind of all over the place a little bit with my training. But I was getting in good training, though. Um, and, and ultimately, I was, I was able to find some fitness. Um, with about four weeks to go, I ran a tune-up half marathon uh, in Athens, Georgia, that was similar to the New York City Marathon uh, topographically. It was hilly like it was. And I actually ran two minutes faster than my goal time that day. Uh, and I suddenly realized that maybe some of the vision I had for actually being able to run fast in New York uh, was indeed possible. I was actually so psyched about my run in the Athens Half Marathon that it took me a little while to come back um, and to stay focused for that remaining month because there was a part of me that was like, I'm back, good, done. Um, and so I really had to, to, to try and stay focused. One of the things that helped me stay focused, that week they actually released all the numbers. And on that week, uh, thanks to a friend of a friend, I actually got put on a local competitive team. Now, the New York City uh, Roadrunners, the, the, the running club that puts on the New York City Marathon, they actually put on multiple uh, runs throughout the course of the year in all the five boroughs around New York City. And teams can form and they compete against one another at all of the different races. And of course, the climactic race is the New York City Marathon. And the New York Roadrunners, in their rules, will allow you to bring in people from other places, bring in ringers, essentially, for the uh, New York City Marathon Club competition. Um, and so thanks to a friend of a friend, I was put on a local competitive team. And so there are three corrals at the starting line of the New York City Marathon, you have the orange corral, the blue corral, and the green corral. At the front of the blue corral are the professionals. And then right behind them are the next group of people who are expecting to run kind of fast. And that, that's, that's where I had originally been placed. At the front of the orange corral 
is the sub-elite runners. Um, and those are people with qualifying times that aren't quite at the professional level, but, but are obviously at a very high level as well. Uh, and then at the front of the green corral is the local competitive teams. And so getting put on the local competitive team meant that I got to start at the front of one of the corrals. Um, and so obviously I accepted that offer, uh, which I was psyched about. Um, and, uh, and, and I was able to focus for the remainder there. Um, one more solid good month of training. I kept on losing weight and actually got down to, uh, I got the leanest I literally have ever gotten. Um, the, the, the thinnest and the leanest I've gotten in my entire life, even leaner than when I was running 95 miles a week as a college runner. Um, and so, uh, I won't even say the weight that I hit, but it was kind of mind blowing actually. Uh, and I felt great. And, and even though I was running in pain, um, uh, it was not enough to affect my gait and it was not enough to really slow me down. Um, and, and I was effectively managing the injury, uh, like I still am. Uh, we flew up on a Thursday, the race was on a Sunday, and I got ready to run. Now, I had a few goals. Um, the first goal, always in my family, is to start the race, um, and that was a challenge um, at this race, and so starting was going to be a big deal. Uh, the second goal is to finish, um, and so, of course, I wanted to finish. Um, now, to say that you just started and just finished, that wouldn't be quite satisfying enough, but those were the first two goals. And then, of course, I had some time goals. Um, I always feel like you shouldn't make time goals based on kind of what you want to do and just sort of these pie in the sky type things. But based on my training, based on what I had run in Athens, I had three goals. The first one was just under 235, two hours and 35 minutes. 234.59 was the goal. Uh, second was 236.26, which sounds a little bit bizarre. But the reason why that was my second goal was because uh, if I couldn't achieve the first goal um, was because way back in 1996 when I was just out of college um, and I was still running a lot, uh, I was doing some marathon training with hopes of, of running a good marathon um, and I jumped in the Marine Corps marathon untapered and just kind of for fun and I ran 236.27 um, and I, I kind of figured, oh well, I'd like to get a PR because that still today is my PR, that race that I didn't really prepare all that much for specifically that I didn't taper for or anything. And so I had this really weird PR that I would really like to be able to say, no, my PR is some other time that I ran at the New York City Marathon in 2016. So that was my second goal was to run 236.26. My third goal was was sub 240. Um, and of course, if I ran anything uh, slower than that, of course I would still be glad I ran, um, and I would still hopefully qualify for Boston and for Chicago in 2017 and 2018, um, but um, I really just knew I wasn't going to be happy with my race based upon the fitness that I'd been able to get uh, if I ran over 240. Um, I also, by the way, wanted to be in the top 100 in the race and in the top 10 of my age group, but I knew that if I hit those time goals, that those place goals would take care of themselves. Uh, so race day comes around. I had read a whole lot of race reports and advice reports on Runner's World and Runner's Connect and all that sort of thing. And New York City is probably the only race that you will see people talk a lot about the start and getting to the start. Because the logistics of getting 50,000 people to Staten Island for the start of the race are daunting. Um, and so I decided, and you have to make your decisions like in August, um, and so I decided to, to go on the Staten Island Ferry, uh, frankly, because I thought that would be a cooler thing to do. I thought that uh, it would be a more New York-y thing to do. Um, and it was. It was totally worth it. Um, everybody was like, are you going to get seasick? There's no seasickness. The Staten Island Ferry is like the size of a hotel. 
Um, you could barely even tell it was moving. Um, and we went right across the harbor, went right next to the Statue of Liberty. It was super cool. Um, there was a lot of waiting involved because it wasn't just like I went to the ferry and then got on the ferry and then went to the starting line. Um, rather, you have to first get to the launching pad of the ferry, which is, of course, in lower Manhattan. And so I had to leave out of our hotel and, and go and get on the subway. Uh, and then I get on the subway, get to the launching pad, and you wait. And then the doors open, you get onto the, 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 the ferry itself, and then you ride, and then you get off, and you have to wait to get up these stairs. And then you wait in line to get on these buses, and then you get on the buses, and they drive you a few miles away to the start, but then there's traffic. And so the whole process of actually getting to the starting line takes about two to two and a half hours. Um, fortunately, in the line, I actually uh, met a new friend. Uh, she was wearing a Run ATL t-shirt, and so I started talking to her about it. Uh, her name was Brittany, uh, and she was also running the New York City Marathon for the first time. And so that kind of helped calm my nerves just a little bit. But it's, it's interesting because my race didn't start until 9.40. And by the time it was like 7.30 or 8, I was starting to get really, really nervous um, because I was on the bus in traffic and it wasn't really moving all that quickly. And I was thinking, oh my God, I'm going to miss the race. Of course I'm going to miss the race. I had more than 90 minutes left to go before the race was actually scheduled to start. Um, I had plenty of time to get there, but it just takes such a long time to actually get down there to it. Um, I ended up making there in perfect timing, actually. I didn't have to wait out in the cold for three hours like some people did. Um, I was able to get there with about an hour and a half ahead of time and use the bathroom and and, and kind of move around a little bit and, and try and get warmed up. Um, so they call our group up to the starting line. Um, and I wasn't a douchebag about it, but I did kind of make my way up towards the front, just kind of every opportunity I saw to sort of duck in front of somebody I did such that by the time we actually got up to the starting line, I had two guys standing in front of me and they were standing on the starting line. And so I was literally right on the starting line of the New York city marathon in the green corral. Um, the there was no warm up, um, but that was okay because the first mile you go up the bridge, the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, uh, and the second mile you go down it. And so since I knew the first mile was going to be have to be a little bit slower because I was running uphill, um, that would kind of serve a little bit as a warm up. Um, staying there on the starting line, talking to the people around me, started talking to a few people about how fast they want to run because I was hoping I would be able to find a group. Um, there was this Irish guy next to me who was super nervous and kind of started making me nervous, so I had to quit talking to him. Um, but eventually, the gun finally went off, and, and everybody sprints off the line like it's a 5K. Um, the crowd that was actually lined below the bridge, and they're all kind of waiting for their turn to get up onto the bridge and get to the starting line, they all go nuts. All the boats in the harbor start spraying. There's cannons firing. There's music playing. Um, you know, it's a pretty big fanfare, obviously. So you run up the hill on the bridge, run downhill on the bridge. Um, and as it turned out, I was probably one of the first 10 people off the bridge um, in our little corral. The green corral actually starts under the bridge or in the bridge um, on the second level of the bridge, whereas the blue corral and the orange corral start on top of the bridge. Uh, and so we were under the people. There was people running over us, and, and, and we were down below. Um, and so of the local competitive people, I was one of the first people off the bridge. And then you go into Brooklyn, and the first three miles in Brooklyn is basically kind of like a local 5K because the two corrals from up above kind of take a different route for those first three miles. And then right around the 5K mark, that's when all the corrals kind of merge all together. Um, and, and yeah, it was kind of fun. Uh, anyway, 
So the weather was good. It was super windy that day, which I wasn't too fired up about because it felt like every time we would make a turn, we'd be going into the wind, and it felt like we never got a tailwind. Um, and I really wanted, because of that, I really wanted to run with a group. And I figured this is a New York City Marathon. There would probably be some people trying to run about what it is I wanted to run. The problem was that every time like a group would form together, and I'd be like, all right, got a group, got some people to kind of work together with here, got some people to blot the wind for me. Every time I would get together in a group, somebody who had started say, a minute after I did in the blue group, would catch up with my group and would blast through us running maybe 10 seconds faster per mile we did, and everybody in my group would speed up and run with that guy, and my group would just implode. Um, And so I ended up spending, of the 26.2 miles of the New York City Marathon, I ended up spending probably 24 of them solo. Um, I had a little bit of time with a group, but most of it was either with people in front of me or just behind me. And what was maddening was that there was a lot of those 24 miles when I was solo when I had people probably 20 yards up the road from me, like groups just 20 yards up the road from me. They were running the same speed I was. Um, But because my fitness was thin enough, given my abbreviated buildup, I really didn't have it in me to throw in a surge and to run a fast mile in there to catch up with them and then be with that group. I had to make sure I kept it right on the level, right on the edge, um, in order to to keep from blowing up in the latter part of the race. And so, like I say, I had to keep it super steady and end up kind of being by myself the entire time. Um, The crowd was incredible. Um, In order to kind of keep myself relaxed, I started high-fiving every kid that offered a high-five, and so I ended up probably giving 50 high-fives to various kids there in Brooklyn. it's such a New York City race. Um, you're going through various neighborhoods in Brooklyn. And when I ran Boston in 2000, you, you go through some of the, the more crowded places and the crowd is four deep. I swear, the crowd was four deep the entire expanse of Brooklyn. Um, there were people covering every foot of the course uh, for the first 10 miles all the way through Brooklyn. And you would go through various neighborhoods and you'd be like, oh, well, this is the Hasidic Jewish neighborhood. And there'd be people crossing the street that were Hasidic Jews. And then, then you would go through uh, uh, little Jamaica and there'd be all, you know, the, the smell of Jamaican food wafting through the air and Jamaican music playing and stuff like that. The bands were so plentiful in Queens that literally you wouldn't be out of earshot from one band before you would go into earshot of another band. It was like constant music being played for you uh, throughout the entire run. Um, we get out of Brooklyn, we get into Queens, it's only three miles into Queens, and then you take the left onto the Queensboro Bridge, uh, the 51st, I think, 51st Street Bridge, um, and, uh, and then you run into Manhattan. And that's right around 15 or 16 miles. That's the place where everybody and every race report you ever see says that's where the race begins. That's really where it starts, going over the Queensboro Bridge. And it was a weird feeling for me because I had been so focused on the Queensboro Bridge throughout all of my training. Every time my training got hard, I'd be like, Queensboro Bridge, Queensboro Bridge, Queensboro Bridge. There was a song that I listened to a lot in my training that was by Run DMC from the 1980s off their... uh, their Raisin Hell album um, that was, uh, it was actually the title track. And they're from Queens. And there was a line at the very beginning of that song that says, um, uh, kings from Queens, from Queens come kings. And that was the line that stuck in my head. That was my mantra for the race. From Queens come kings, from Queens come kings. Thinking as I emerged from Queens onto the Queensboro Bridge, I was going to go into Manhattan and be strong as I went into Manhattan. What's more, 
my family was waiting for me in Manhattan just on the other side of the 16-mile mark there on the Queensboro Bridge. And so I had a lot of emotions going on as I got to the, the, the Queensboro Bridge. The funny thing about it is that I felt like I got there so fast. And, you know, it's 16 miles into the race. It's an hour and 30 to hour and 40 minutes into the race. I, I, I become accustomed to doing Ironmans where the real exciting part of the race doesn't come until about eight hours into the race. And so I felt like, wow, I'm at the climax of the race already here. That's that's pretty exciting after only an hour and a half. So I ended up running over the bridge. It was super cool. Saw my family, gave them high fives, was barely able to hold it together. Um, uh, high fived a few police officers along the way, got a nice picture of me high fiving a police officer. That's now my Strava profile picture. Um, and then uh, continued on up First Avenue into the Bronx. Um, I had read that you were supposed to gain back some time on First Avenue. I totally didn't. Um, I was hung out between groups at that point. Um, I really wasn't catching anybody, and nobody was catching me. My watch had malfunctioned on that point, uh, by that point, and uh, and and so none of my splits were really right. I think that I had lost satellites when I went over the Queensboro Bridge since it's covered, uh, and they never really quite found it. Um, my watch, by the way, was never quite right throughout the course of the entire race. It was ringing early for every single mile split up to the Queensboro Bridge. Um, and I, I had been told that that was because you can't run the tangents because there's so many turns in New York that by the time that you get to to the mile markers, you will have undoubtedly run extra because you simply cannot run the tangents because there's too many of them and there's too many people. Um, and so I was running farther than, than, than I should have been. But then um, by the time I got, like I said, on the other side of the Queensboro Bridge, there was absolutely no correlation between what my watch was telling me and what the uh, what the mile markers were. And so, of course, I just started going off the mile markers on the course uh, and the clocks that were at every mile. So get up into the Bronx, high-five a couple more people, pretty deep into the pain cave at this point, uh, dropped off my gloves at 20-mile mark and immediately began to worry that, that I was going to be seen by a race official and, and, and disqualified for tossing gloves at 20-mile mark. Um, Turn back down Fifth Avenue um, and start, I guess what you could say is the home stretch of the race. Uh, it's five miles, and so you know, it's kind of a long home stretch, but you know, it's five miles pretty much on Fifth Avenue there. Um, and began trying to fix my mind on what I knew was the other big test of the race, which is the Fifth Avenue Hill. Um, right at the 23-mile mark, there is one of the most significant hills in the entire race. Uh, it's a half-mile-long hill, and you can see it from about a mile away. Um, and so I, I'm running, 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 running. I look up, I see the hill, I run for another six minutes or so, and, and then I'm going up the hill. And it was a crusher. Um, and I hadn't been catching people just because it seemed like I was hung out between groups. And I started running up that hill, and I started catching people. Um, not only because they were falling apart on the hill, but because the hill crushed people so much that as we came off the hill, um, I think that's just where a lot of people's race ended. Um, and so... If you're planning on running it and you want to fixate on something, obviously fixate on the Queensboro Bridge, like I said, but fixate on that 23rd mile hill too, That at the beginning of the 23rd, 24th mile, 23 to 23 and a half, uh, that Fifth Avenue hill. Uh, we duck into the park. We take a right. Um, at that point, my quads were just completely destroyed, and, and I was running as hard as I could but just couldn't get my stride going again. Um, Again, I've, I lost some of the fluidity of my stride uh, when I got run over by that truck, um, and I still haven't gotten it back. Um, and so I'm stumbling along what felt like a stumble. 
Um, and I felt like I had another gear and we even go downhill in the 25th mile and I just couldn't get it going. Um, and so that was really kind of frustrating. I was focused on getting out of the park because there's this one short stretch towards the end of the 25th mile, 26th mile, uh, where you run on Central Park South Drive, got out of the park, took the left on Central Park South Drive, ran a couple blocks on there, took the left or the right back into the park, um, and, and headed towards the finish line, um, it was funny because I crossed the finish line, throw my hands up in the air, and then several people who uh, were watching the coverage on TV, they literally were signing off on the coverage. They're like, well, thanks for joining us in the New York City Marathon. And literally as they're saying that, I crossed the finish line right behind the person with my arms in the air. And then the coverage ended. <laughs> um, and so I was just barely able to get on TV um, there. Had I run two seconds slower, I, I, I would have uh, been faded to black. Uh, so that was my New York City Marathon. Uh, goals. Did I start? Yes. Did I finish? Yes. And in fact, I, I thought a lot about it and, and it's not enough for me just to finish. And, and I think from now on when I say, did I finish? And that's the goal. It's not only did I finish, but it's, did you finish with the best effort that you could have given on that day? And I did feel that way at the end of this race. Um, 2.34.59? No, I didn't get that. The race didn't quite unfold for me that way. Uh, it was too windy. I was too solo. Um, I just didn't happen. Um, I went through halfway at 117.45. I was right about where I needed to be and right about where my plan put me in order to get that 235 goal, but it just didn't happen. 236.26, I missed that by 21 seconds. I ran 236.47. Um, and so I still have this weird marathon PR, which is frustrating. Um, I, uh, I, I am going to do Chicago this year in 2017, and hopefully I will be able to to, to run a true marathon PR at Chicago and, and, and we'll quit having to say, oh, well, my PR is kind of this strange thing of this race that I ran. Hopefully I'll be able to stop saying that. Um, but of course, as you can imagine, ever since I finished the New York City Marathon, I've been replaying in my mind trying to figure out where could I have gotten less than one second per mile um, and been able to say that, that I have a PR from the, the New York City Marathon in 2016. Uh, but I didn't. Uh, sub 240, I did get that. Um, and along with that, um, I finished fifth in my age group, the 40 to 45 age group. Uh, Michael Wardian, who I mentioned before, finished second. And since he's a pro ultra runner, actually, maybe I shouldn't count him, but uh, but uh, but he finished a couple of minutes in front of me, um, and uh, uh, as did three other guys. And so I was fifth in my age group, um, and I finished 75th overall. Um, and so I was pretty happy about that. Um, at the end of the day, um, when they did the official count and the official results, there were more than 51,000 finishers in the New York City Marathon. 2016 was the largest marathon that's ever been run. Um, more participants in that marathon, more finishers in that marathon than any other marathon ever that we know of in recorded history. Uh, so it's pretty cool to be able to say that I finished in the top 0.2% of, of that marathon. Um, so what now? Chicago, as I mentioned, Boston. Um, the qualifying times for both Chicago and Boston were 3.15 in my age group. Um, and so I was able to get those qualifying times with my New York time. And so that kind of sets me up uh, for marathons for the next year and a half. And what's more, I, I kind of, I'm more comfortable in my skin. I mentioned that a, a year ago I was kind of flailing about. I didn't know what's next. I kind of like George the Marathoner. Um, I'm good with that. I, I like it. I want to be able to run more. Um, but I'm still managing the injury, um, and I'm still not being forced to cross-train a, good, big, uh, a great deal and still being forced to, to spend a lot of time on prehab and rehab, which I really wish I didn't have to do. But I do like marathons, and I do like being a marathoner, um, and, and I'm pretty sure that that's what my future holds. 
um, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, but more than that, I also have some priorities based upon what I learned in New York. Um, I'm excited to be able to do a proper build this year. Um, I mentioned that my build for New York was kind of scattered because I was trying to do a bunch of different things at once. This year, I'm going to be able to do a more regimented, more proper build um, in which I have uh, microcycles and mesocycles that, that work on each of the individual systems that need to be addressed in a marathon build. And so I'm really excited about that. Um, I need to get better at shifting gears. Um, as I mentioned, whenever somebody would come along and and bust up the group and most everybody else in the group would speed up, I was unable to do that because I'm not good at shifting gears. Um, and so one of my priorities for this year, for 2017, is to become better at shifting gears. I think as a, as a triathlete, I got really, really good, and I'm inclined towards this anyway, at locking in at a specific effort and staying at that effort level, right at that effort level. Um, and that, that can be a very good thing, um, but it makes me incapable of responding to um, the challenges uh, in an active race. And so I'm choosing a lot of my races, particularly in the first half of this year, and, and choosing a lot of my workouts in the first half of this year uh, based around um, learning to shift gears better. Um, and third, um, another one of my priorities right now is, is building some more quad strength um, and, and trying to make my, my quads more resilient to the pounding um, that they're taking, not only because my gait has is, is lost a lot of its fluidity, and I'm working on that too, um, but, but also just because I think that that was my big limiter in the last 5K of the New York City Marathon was that my quads just didn't have it anymore. Um, like I said, I wanted to shift gears uh, in those downhills in the 25th mile, and my quads just weren't having it. Um, that was the most intense pain I had felt in my quads ever. Um, and I've done five Ironmans. This was far worse than that. And so, so I'm, I'm working on quad strength with that. Um, so there you have it, my New York City Marathon race report in podcast form here. Um, let me know. Did you compete? Have you done it before? What was your experience with it? Is there something I left out? Was there questions about my experience? Um, are there other things that you experienced that were different from what I had or, or were the same as what I had? Um, I'd love to hear about it. So uh, hit me up on the, the uh, Facebook page, hit me up on Twitter, and, uh, and let me know how it went for you. And that does it for this installment of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thanks for listening. Uh, Please go on to iTunes and give us a rating, give us a review. That would help us out a lot. Uh, Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast, um, or check out our blog, which I never really seem to write in all that much, at mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com. Of course, you can check out our Facebook page, too, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Check out our sponsor, ITL Coaching and Performance, itlcoaching.com, on Twitter, at itlcoaching, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash itlcoachingandperformance. Um, and also, of course, check out our other sponsor, my wife, The Travel Planner, facebook.com slash caseytravelplannermev. Um, you can also check your drop her a line at caseytravelplanner at gmail.com. That's a new email address. That's K-A-C-I-E travelplanner at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. Be safe.